episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka with, as always, Professor Akhil Amar. And as you know, uh, America's Constitution is sponsored by EverScholar, where you can, later this year, reemerge from the pandemic and refresh your mind and your soul with fantastic, uh, immersive learning experiences with the world's best faculty, including Professor Amar, by the way, and many of your fellow America's Constitution listeners, among others. Check it out at everscholar.org. Today we're particularly excited because we have a guest who's not only extremely distinguished, but who's really a perfect match for our podcast and for the moment. As you know, Congress has been taking up a number of important bills, including some voting rights measures. While Democrats have been united behind some of these bills, they lack the 60 votes to pass a cloture motion that would be required to defeat a filibuster, and Republicans have consistently filibustered these proposals. There's therefore been a lot of discussion about eliminating the filibuster as an obstacle to passing bills by a simple majority vote, as is done in the House of Representatives. Well, 10 years ago, Professor Amar and our guest, former Senator Gary Hart, co-authored a piece in Slate, which of course we will attach to our show notes for this episode. And this piece advocated for the end of the filibuster and did so by flying in the face of the then conventional wisdom, which held that the filibuster was a great tradition of the Senate going back to the founding, that it was essential to its deliberative function, and that in any event, it couldn't be dispensed with without a supermajority vote. And even if such a vote could be produced, it could only take place on the first day of a new Congress. So all of those things were widely believed. And this landmark article shot all of this so-called conventional wisdom to hell. And over time, senator after senator became convinced of the correctness of these arguments. Eventually, we saw the Democrats eliminate the filibuster for presidential appointments. And later, the Republicans did the same for federal judicial appointments, including Supreme Court appointments. So as I said, our guest and Akil's friend and ally in this quest is the former senator and presidential candidate, Gary Hart. We remember Senator Hart being identified with the phrase, new ideas. So it's particularly fitting that he and Akil partnered on this groundbreaking set of new ideas. So we're going to discuss the story of this article, its arguments from a constitutional, historical, and political point of view. And then we'll get into some of the innumerable areas, and it's really amazing, of expertise and experience that Senator Hart brings to the table. Now, there's no way we can fit all this in one episode, and we're really thrilled today to report that the senator has agreed to return in two weeks for a second part of this episode. So in the meantime, I encourage you to put all of your questions on our website, akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two, or just go to akilamar.com and click on America's Constitution. So we might include some of those questions in our next encounter with Senator Hart. But let's get to it. And we want to start out by telling you a little bit about this great American. So Gary Hart was a member of the United States Senate from Colorado for two terms from 1975 through 1987. He graduated from the Yale Law School in 1964 after receiving a degree from the Yale Divinity School in 61. He worked at the Department of Justice, later the Department of the Interior, then spent some time in private practice in Colorado. Then in 1972, 
he was the national campaign director for the presidential primary campaign of George McGovern, who won the Democratic Party nomination. Two years later, he was elected to the U.S. Senate, and he defeated a two-term incumbent Republican at that time. Then he won re-election six years later, despite the Reagan landslide of 1980. And while in the Senate, he served on the Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee, and the Church Investigative Committee. While chairing the Nuclear Regulation Subcommittee, he flew over Three Mile Island during the nuclear accident a number of times. In 1984, Senator Hart ran for president, and despite starting with less than 1% in the polls, he won the New Hampshire primary, and going up against the front-running status of former Vice President Walter Mondale, he won many states, and the race was close all the way to the convention. Eventually, Mondale was nominated. Senator Hart ran again in 1988, and amidst a media storm, he eventually withdrew. He embarked on a varied and remarkable post-Senate career. He obtained a DPhil in politics from Oxford in 2001. His thesis on the restoration of the Republic later became a book, which was one of more than 20 books that he authored. He served on the Hart-Rudman Commission on National Security in the 21st Century, when he was, where he was appointed by President Clinton. And he, uh, this committee presciently uh, predicted the 9-11 attacks. Senator Hart gave a speech to that effect only one week before the actual attacks, and later that week, he met with National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice with similar warnings. He continued his service as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Operations USA, the State Department International Security Advisory Council, and many other organizations. He's held visiting professorships at Yale, Berkeley, Oxford, and the University of Colorado, and served as the U.S. Special Envoy to Northern Ireland during the Obama administration. Books have continued to flow from his pen, including novels as well as works of political science, religion, and foreign policy, and he has a new book coming out this spring. So welcome to America's Constitution, Senator Gary Hart. Hello. Hello. To our audience, um, it's Akil here. Uh, usually Andy takes the, the lead in um, asking questions, but today I've um, asked for the, the special honor to say a few words about uh, my friend, my um, uh, role model, uh, really, um, in, in so many ways. Um, uh, Gary Hart, I, I, this is a podcast that, um, as, our, as our listeners know, have, has brought to you all sorts of quite extraordinary um, people. I'll, I'll mention just a, a few, um, a Bob Woodward uh, and Neil Katyal in particular, and here's why I'm gonna, I mention those among uh, uh, many others, um, because if you're really lucky in life, and I've been really lucky, uh, the people who are your role models become your friends. And that happened for me with, with Bob Woodward, um, who changed my life when I was in high school. I um, was very influenced by um, his crusading journalism, trying to sort of emulate it. And as it turns out, as, as you've heard before on the podcast, I think what got me into Yale College. And he wrote a book on the Supreme Court, which encouraged me to think about law school, his uh, co-authored book, The Brethren. And now... Bob Woodward is one of my closer friends in the world. I, I sat in on his classes. I, I dedicated a, a recent book to him. 
Um, and Andy has sat in on classes with Bob. Uh, Neil Katyal. Neil is my student. He's younger than I am, um, but um, uh, he's become a role model in life. And and he was on the podcast as was as was Bob Woodward. I, I want to now share with the audience just a little bit about my life with Gary Hart, which begins before Gary Hart knows Akilah Mar exists. Just as <laughs> my life with Bob Woodward, you see, begins when I'm, you know, a little pipsqueak in, in, in high school, and, and he has just with Carl Bernstein brought down a president of the United States. Um, uh, so um, I'm uh, a student at Yale Law School, uh, class of 84, and it's a presidential election year. Um, Ronald Reagan is running for re-election. Um, he was my governor for eight years. He's a very formidable um, uh, force politically. Um, he was, was going to be very hard to beat um, in any event, an incumbent president. And incumbents have uh, big advantages. But I had heard as a student about another um, Yale Law School alum uh, named Gary Hart, whose protege, among others, it was my protege, another one of my role models in life, my heroes, uh, the great Guido Calabresi. Actually, Akil, small correction, I think that you're saying that you and Gary were Guido's protégés. Um, and Guido had um, Gary way back when. Gary was a, a graduate of the class of 1964. Uh, it's a quite extraordinary class. Um, I think uh, actually uh, Jerry Brown is in that class. Um, I think Paul Songus might even have been in that class or, or plus or minus a year. Yes. Um, uh, and and they you know and they would all all three of these would eventually um, uh, run for president. The person who admitted me, Yale Law School, the great um, admissions dean for many years, um, happens to be African American, Jim Thomas, um, yes. a hero to to Clarence Thomas, and and one day maybe Clarence Thomas will be on this podcast and tell you his Jim Thomas story. But he's Yale Law School class of, of '64, so I'd, I'd heard stories about Gary Hart um, from um, his his teachers, especially. Guido Calabresi, who um, very much ad admired him then and, and still does. And um, so I actually found a student organization um, in the, I think, the, the spring of 84, uh, Yale Students for Gary Hart. Um, why was I so um, uh, smitten uh, by him? Uh, uh, well, because um, uh, I've always been interested in the presidency. I memorized the presidency at age um, seven, still can recite them um, if I close my eyes. Don't, please. I won't. Okay. <laughs> but um, uh, but I've studied presidents and presidential greatness. I'm, I'm often polled um, uh, in, these, uh, when, in these journalistic uh, uh, polls of, 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 of presidential uh, greatness, ranking uh, presidents. Uh, I thought Gary Hart had a kind of interesting combination. He comes from the heartland and is a self-made lawyer um, in the tradition of, of Abraham Lincoln. Um, he has a, a certain youthful charisma um, and uh, Ivy League uh, credentials um, in the tradition um, of, of, of Jack Kennedy. Um, and there's a, a youthfulness uh, that, that he brings to the table. And, and, and remember, in 84, we're running against a then uh, very old Ronald Reagan. So I believe in law training, and you see Jack Kennedy isn't law trained, although he, he ran a generational appeal. I remember in his inaugural address, let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe like the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. And, and Hart seems to me to, to kind of capture a certain generational idea. It was the, the, the boomers time, and there was that. Um, he's law trained. 
He's, he, he's from the heartland. He has a certain vigor. There will be, and we're going to put this on the podcast, um, Gary, we're going to have a, a, on the website, excuse me, a link to an extraordinary moment where in New Hampshire, you actually um, uh, throw an axe um, and it sticks um, in uh, a wooden target. It's, it's an epic moment and you sort of snap your suspenders and, and this is like Abe Lincoln, the rail splitter. Um, uh, so, so, okay, but he's also a serious intellectual and he's politically, it seems to me, quite extraordinary. He is George McGovern's campaign manager in 1972, that's on the left of the political spectrum. Um, and yet two years later, he manages to get elected in a reddish purple state, uh, Colorado. It wasn't really even, you know, today it's, it's a little bit more on the blue side perhaps, but but that back then, no, so two years after being George McGovern's campaign manager, he wins against an incumbent in a, basically a reddish state. And then six years later, he actually wins um, re-election. This is in a Reagan, what, what turns out to be a kind of a Reagan landslide, I think that year, 1980, liberal lions uh, in the Senate lose, um, I think, Frank Church in, in Idaho, Birch Bayh in uh, Indiana, I, I think McGovern himself maybe in, in South Dakota. And yet Gary Hart manages um, to win. So that, that bespoke a certain... Uh, political versatility, it seems to me, and uh, nimbleness. Um, someone who has the intellectual chops um, that are associated with with the coasts, you know, with, with Ivy League schools, and yet can, can can speak to to the heartland. He hadn't written them all at the time, but I I think he's written more than twenty books. Um, all in some novels, um, some serious nonfiction books. He he thinks deeply. Uh, uh, and even back then, I could tell he was trying didn't maybe have the answers to all of America's um, problems, but he was trying to think deeply about America's problems in, in, in policy wonkish ways, um, both domestic issues and foreign policy issues. He will later become actually an, an envoy. But I saw all this in 1984, and he, he, honestly, he really did in, inspire me. I didn't quite know him uh, at the time, but I'd heard all these stories um, about him. I want to read one thing that... Um, another very prominent senator from the West said about Gary Hart. This is another senator who actually um, ran for president, um, Mr. Republican, in fact, Barry Goldwater. Here's what, um, what Barry Goldwater said of, of Hart. Quote, you can disagree with him politically, but I've never met a man who's more honest and more moral. That's the vision I had um, way back when, when I was uh, just still a third-year law student. Um, as it turns out, I, I get to know Gary Hart a little bit. When he came to Yale Law School, I, I kind of was a co-teacher in a seminar um, that he taught. I later actually co-authored a piece with him about filibuster reform. It came out this month, Gary, 11 years ago, and at the time, it was way out there, and now actually virtually every Democrat agrees with this. And, and in fact, I'll share with my audience one little story about that. I, I came up with the idea, and I wanted someone seriously credible to, um, uh, uh, who knew the Senate to endorse it, and, and Gary was willing to, to, to do that as a, as a former senator. He actually said in a very polite way, he said, well, you know, Professor, you, you, you invoke John Locke, and, and, you said, and you, I think, quote in the draft, it says, two treatises 
on government, but I think it's actually two treatises of government. And of course, he's right. He's you know he's an Oxford scholar, and I think, oh my God, you know this is what I do for a living. And Gary Hart is properly correcting my uh, invocation of 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 Lockshare, but we published that thing together. So he's my co-teacher. He's my co-author. I'm really proud to call him now my friend because just again to conclude uh, to the audience. If you're really lucky in life, people who you grow up admiring, approach them. Let them know that. Um, um, and, and if you're really lucky, they, they may become your friends. And, and that's happened with, with Senator Gary Hart. And we're so honored, Senator, to have you here with us today. Professor, it's my pleasure. Thank you both. Well, you know, that was a bit of a filibuster on the part of Akil, um, so I'm going to move to uh, close debate on that. Um, and... Uh, and actually talk about this, uh, this article a little bit because, you know, I think it's timely now that, um, you know, the filibuster is in the news. I mean, it, it may have turned out to be a little bit of a dud in terms of, uh, you know, Joe Biden's uh, speech, President Biden's speech, trying to push the Voting Rights Act, which would have required um, getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate, at least for the purposes of this legislation, um, if not for all legislation. Um, and that, doesn't look like it's going to happen right now as we speak on January 17th, Martin Luther King Day, um, because of the opposition of two senators, Senators Manchin and Sinema, at least, on the Democratic side. Um, but nevertheless, this was a big deal in 2011, this article about, uh, you know, entitled How to End the Filibuster Forever. So what was it about this moment, Senator, that, that caused you uh, and Akil to, you know, write, to write this um, right then. And what did you hope to accomplish? Um, you know, what, what was the atmosphere regarding the uh, filibuster at that moment? Do you recall? The idea of the, of the piece was his, and I was honored to join him in it. I, I can't recall the political dynamic of 2011 that triggered this, but I think it was a similar situation where the, just the threat of a filibuster, that is continuous debate to prevent a vote, uh, stalled some very important legislation. But as he knows, and, and I think most constitutional scholars know, filibuster was meant, at least the positive side of its existence, to prevent bad legislation. Now, who gets to decide what's good and what's bad? But much of it had to do uh, with placating, in those days, Democrats in the South, Democratic members of Congress and Democratic senators uh, over civil rights legislation. But as has been pointed out, in those days, remarkably, if you wanted to mount a filibuster against a pending piece of legislation, you had to stand up and talk. And then as time went on, and we're now talking about the 40s, 50s, and 60s, if not beyond, as time went on, the filibuster could be, both parties more or less agreed, that the threat of a filibuster was, in fact, a filibuster. And all you had to do was say, I don't agree with that legislation. And if you, the leadership, brings it up, uh, then I and my colleagues will 
talk it to death, and you will get nothing else done. So it migrated from the marathon speeches into the night to a threat of marathon speeches. And that's where we are now. And uh, I think those who were brought to want to change that, including some who don't want to abandon it, the, the notion of so-called unlimited debate, at the very least want to revert to the use of the filibuster as it was in the old days. That is to say, you feel strongly about it, be prepared to stand up and talk all night or get colleagues to help you. It has been badly abused in more modern times and that and nowhere now more than over voting rights. Uh, I don't know of a single serious student about America today and the threat to democracy in America, in America today who does not believe that we, that we need national legislation to prevent voter suppression, to prevent the politicization of counting of the votes at the local level, uh, and the list goes on. But democracy is in danger. And I think Professor Amar, among many others, has documented that. And many of us who are deeply concerned about our country and its future do not want the core, the heart of democracy being the ballot to be abused as it is being and is being prepared to be abused in the 22 and 24 elections, if not also beyond. So um, if I could just jump uh, uh, back in, I remember, Gary, way back when, you, you told me that your views had evolved, um, that when you first came to the Senate, and kind of Robert Byrd took you aside, you know, maybe, and he said, now listen, you know, I was there with James Madison and Thomas Jefferson <laughs> and George Washington and, 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 and Cicero, for that matter, you know, way back when, when, this, when the Senate was invented, and here are traditions and the filibuster, it's uh, part of what the framers believed and all the rest, and, and I think you said, well, you know, uh, Senator Byrd, he's been here a long time, he, he, he knows, and you kind of, you, you gradually changed your views a, a, about that, and in fact, I think you're right that the filibuster came to be a, quite badly abused in the 20th century to oppose all sorts of voting rights measures. And actually, um, Robert Byrd, way back in the day in the 19, early 60s, uh, was on the wrong side of history. Um, yes former Klansman, he, he, he reformed, he, he changed his stripes. It, it's never too late for any of us to change. You know, we, you know, we're, we're three oldsters here, but, um, but that, that's just hope for everyone that you, you, you can evolve and, and grow. But Senator Byrd actually um, basically created a certain myth that the filibuster goes all the way back to the founding and it really doesn't. So I actually just want to share a few little tidbits um, about that. Um, Okay, if I could just interrupt before you do, I'd be very interested in hearing um, kind of what this orientation looked like or felt like. Did you actually have this conversation, um, Gary, with with uh, Senator Byrd, and or or what what kind of uh, introduction to the the Senate uh, 
the Senate ways, did you, uh, or indoctrination, if you will, did you? Well, first of all, it was a much, much different Senate, and I could spend a long time comparing the Senate that I joined in uh, 74, 75, uh, to the Senate of today in so many ways. But the, the second fact, in my own case, was uh, my youth. I was 36 years old when elected to the Senate, and I'd never run for office before, and 37 when I was sworn into office, and I had enormous respect for the Senate. Um, and the old slogan, when you get there, one of the old timers gets you aside and says, you're going to spend the first six months wondering how you got here the next <laughs> six years wondering how everybody else got here. <laughs> but i had enormous respect and that that senate of the 70s if i were to read off both democratic and republican names uh was a, a tower of strength and democracy as compared to some of the stuff that's going on there today presiding officers appearing in the chair in casual clothes. It's uh, for, for those of us who are kind of worshipful of the tradition of the Senate, uh, it's gone very far downhill and uh, continues to go downhill. But um, th that was the context. I, was, I wasn't intimidated. I told several times, I told my late wife, that when I took the oath of office, I felt totally at home. I felt totally as if this was where I was supposed to be. It's, it's the most eerie experience I've ever had in my life, given all those circumstances. But um, I worshiped the place. And then to see the insurrection mob desecrating the temple of democracy for the world, not just for the United States, but for the world. I can't tell you how that broke my heart. Uh, Gary, interestingly enough, um, the piece that you and I published together in Slade in 2011 was published um, uh, on January 6th. Um, so, I didn't remember that. So that is 10 years to the day. Um, before the um, the Capitol riot, so you know when historians look back, they they you know may, and 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 this is for for the audience. This is not just a podcast for the moment. So this conversation isn't just for the podcast; it's for posterity because one day an important biography of Senator Hart will be written. I don't know you know by whom. You know maybe one of my kids will write it. Who knows? Um, but um, the the conversation that we're going to have today, you know, will be part of the historical record, and so uh, we're so grateful that you're willing to share these reminiscences. So so people thought way back in 2011 when Senator Hart and I uh, uh, write this piece in, in Slate, you know, the, the myth that people like Senator Byrd had put forth is that the filibuster comes goes all the way back to the founding or the, uh, in, in its modern in, incarnation. And it's not true. So I'm just going to read a couple of quick passages uh, about that. Um, and, but here's my aha fact. Um, there are two of them. One, for those of you, because you might say, well, you know, prove it. I'll prove it in 30 seconds. If there's any important bill that was actually 
talked to death, filibustered to death um, prior to the Civil War, you know, and there are 15,000 people who listen to this podcast every week, please name one, please name it, because I don't know it. And, and the great historians of Congress, like David Mayhew, Sterling Professor at Yale, don't know it. I, I've never seen it in any of the literature. Robert Byrd never pointed to it. I can't prove the negative, but I'm in, inviting anyone. If some genuinely important bill was actually prevented from coming to a final vote, name it. Because back in the old days, the Senate was smaller. People did t- um, have a chance to talk. Everyone got to talk, and then everyone got to vote. That's actually how it worked. That's my first aha fact. Here's my second that the compromise of 1850, compromise is not always a bad word. It it can be, but not always. But the the famous compromise of 1850 was a very big deal. Joe Biden there back then, he would have said, it's a big effing deal. But it's a big deal because California comes in as a free state with no offsetting slave state. And that meant that for the first time, the free states would have the narrowest of majorities in the Senate. Free states already had a majority in the House because population was moving into the Northwest more than the Southwest. So the Compromise of 1850 was a very big deal because the free states would now have an ever so slight majority in the Senate as well as a reliable majority in the House. And that was a big deal precisely because there was no entrenched filibuster, because simple majorities actually did rule um, and had passed many important bills in the past and and would be able to do so in the future. And everyone understood that in 1850. So those are two aha facts that show you that it doesn't go all the way back to the founding. Now I'm going to read you just a couple of of quotes and and then Gary and you back into the conversation. One is from John Locke, um, who had written before um, the Constitution, and, and as I said, you're the one who actually corrected me. I had talked about his canonical second treatise um, um, on government, and you very politely said... That was uh, his proudest moment, the kill. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so here's what he said, quote, in assemblies empowered to act by positive laws, where no number is set by that positive law, which empowers them, so unless the, 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 the thing, uh, some document or rule specifies otherwise, The act of the majority passes for the act of the whole and, of course, determines as having, by the law of nature and reason, the power of the whole. So this is like an enlightenment idea. That's the center of gravity. There's a unique mathematical feature to simple majorities. So so that's Locke. And remember, the framers are building on Locke. And actually, Ben Franklin in the Philadelphia Convention, you know, um, here's what he says. He's definitely an enlightenment person. um, And... Um, he, he describes majority rule as, quote, the common practice of assemblies in all countries and ages. And no one actually said otherwise when Ben Franklin said that at the Philadelphia Convention. Now I'm going to invoke one third person that I know Gary thinks about a lot, Thomas Jefferson. Gary is a proud, small-D Democrat, capital-D Democrat. He hails. He's in a Jefferson tradition you know, of a certain sort, an Enlightenment person who is comfortable with great ideas and great universities, um, but also um, is, a, is a person who's comfortable with rural folk in the heartland. And, and of course, the state for, that he represented as a senator, the state of Colorado, was originally actually called the, the, uh, the territory of Jefferson, um, and, and, and so Gary, I know, thinks a lot about Jefferson, has written about Jefferson in some of his books, and he's written and about And his Locke. PhD uh, dissertation, well, his DPhil dissertation at, or thesis at Oxford also uh, had to do with Jefferson. 
Absolutely. You know, he's, he's a real uh, um, a scholar, which is why I wanted him to be our president, you, you, you see. Um, uh, so um, here's actually um, Jefferson's, the only book that he ever published, actually notes on the state of Virginia. Uh, Lex Majoris Partis, that is majority rule, is founded in common law as well as common right. It is the natural law of every assembly of men whose numbers are not fixed by any other law. Okay, so Locke, Jefferson, Franklin, and basically the entire American tradition uh, up to the Civil War. We, we don't have this entrenched filibuster. Let me actually quote just one final thing, which is Jefferson's manual on the Senate. He's, the um, remember, an early vice president uh, when Adams is president, and he's got a lot of energy. So in his spare time, he comes up with this manual of parliamentary procedure that, that to this day is a revered document in the Senate. Gary is nodding his, his head here. This is actually what's in his manual. Manual parliamentary practice for the use of the Senate United States it's published in 1801. Quote, no one is to speak impertinently or beside the question, superfluously or tediously. The voice of the majority decides. For the lex majoris partis, that is majority rule, is the law of all councils, elections, etc., when not otherwise expressly provided. That is in the, this, this, the, the, this revered document authored by Thomas freaking Jefferson, the Manual of Parliamentary Practice for Use of the Senate of the United States. But who's to say um, that the, the Senate isn't <clears throat> extraordinary? In other words, that the, the very specialness of the Senate that uh, Gary was referring to uh, means that it, it actually might consider having rules that are stricter than than usual and so forth. That so they're the, actually... argument that, the argument that Gary and I made was the following. The Senate can have all sorts of rules, whatever rules it wants. It can require um, that things go to committee first, that, that, that they're not just presented to the floor, that this vote um, on this issue is subject to, to this voting rule and on that issue, another voting rule. So that's all fine. What we said, though, is the Constitution itself in effect, sets up a, a rule that simple majorities are suffice to pass laws. That's why, and when the Constitution wants a different rule, um, it specifies it. Two-thirds are required, for example, um, when the Senate's acting without the House in, in, uh, adopt, in uh, giving advice and consent to a, a treaty. Two-thirds of each House are required for a constitutional amendment. Two-thirds is required in a, a, an impeachment conviction. Again, the Senate not quite acting in, in imperfect bicameralism with the, with the House, although the House has, has voted to, to impeach. So the Constitution can provide for um, supermajority rules, but where it doesn't, the basic ground rule for passing laws and for um, passing Senate rules is majority rule, so that at any given moment, the Senate should be free, if it really, really wants to, um, to modify um, all the other rules. That They can have rules of debate that are simple majority, but they have to be real rules of debate that are about making sure that everyone gets a chance to speak. But when actually things never, ever, ever come to a vote, that rule of debate has hardened into a rule of decision, and if it's an entrenched rule that not that a majority of the Senate can't change, at that very moment it becomes unconstitutional. It violates the Jefferson-Locke-Franklin principle. And that's the argument that Gary and I made in Slate in January of 2011. At the time, not everyone understood that. Um, but today, 
I think, you know, it's, it, Gary, it's gained a lot of momentum. And you don't know this because I haven't told you this, but, but after we wrote that together, because here's the thing, um, uh, I needed first to, you know, persuade you and, and thank you for joining me, but, but I needed your name and stature and reputation because you were a member of the club and a very respected member of the club. Even, and it's, it's a club for life. Ex-senators are, are still, you know, part of the Senate family. And when you said, hmm, this argument, you know, per persuades me, that enabled me over the ensuing years to knock on various doors in the Hart office building, named for a different Hart, um, uh, you know, Senator Philip Hart from Michigan, um, and, 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 and the Russell building and Dirksen. I, I would go down to D.C. from time to time, knock on, on the doors of Senate, Senate um, uh, chambers, um, meet with senators and or their staffers, and give them a copy of this slate piece that you and I wrote and one by one by one, it began to persuade people, actually, and, and it mattered a lot. I'm, I'm telling you, I don't think I've told you this before, that, you know, I would always drop your name and say, well, you know, Senator Hart actually agrees with me on this. And, and see, we wrote this thing together. He's laughing now. But, uh, so, 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 Gary, did, when you were in the Senate, um, did you have an evolution regarding the filibuster during your time in the Senate where, you know, you were, you know, sort of indoctrinated into this, um, notion that it was, you know, from the founding that it was important to the character of the Senate and so forth. And then obviously you had some frustration, I'm sure, at times from it. But, you know, you could have just said, well, this is part of the game. Or did you have an evolution while you were in the Senate on it? Oh, I, I very much did. And the abuse of the filibuster process was part of that evolution. If it's one thing to have a tradition, and if the tradition makes some sense and achieves uh, positive objectives, maybe to keep that tradition. But as Professor Amar said, it, it, uh, he, more than anyone else, persuaded me that it was uh, far outside what was acceptable practice uh, in the Senate and the conduct of the business of the Republic. So yes, very much so. It was being it was being abused then. It's uh, totally abusive now. It's so much worse now because it, it yes. is it's not a rule of debate. People don't debate. They don't offer reasons. They read the phone book or they just don't say anything at all. They just say I'm going to insist that we uh, go through a process that requires um, a supermajority. And now almost every important piece of legislation. Um, requires at a minimum 60 votes. And, and that's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution says simple majority in the House uh, uh, and a simple majority in the Senate and the president's signature, that's a law. I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. You know, that's Constitution Rock 101. And today that's not how it works, not for the unusual statute, you know, that, uh, but for almost everything except for, you know, some narrow little piece of legislation you can call reconciliation or something. But the standard operating procedure for most bills today is that you need 60 votes in the Senate. And, and um, that wasn't even true, I think, um, at the end of, of, of Senator Hart's time in office. But it is true today. Yes, very much so. So if um, now we've got, you know, about 48 Democratic senators that are prepared to, you know, put the kibosh on the filibuster. But we have um, Senator Ma Senators Manchin and Sinema saying, no, this is, uh, 
you know, important for minority rights, uh, and, and it's part of the tradition of the Senate. And, and if we get rid of it, um, then it's going to come back to when the Republicans are in the majority, it's going to be a big problem. If you were in the Senate today, would you attempt to persuade them? And if you, you know, or even have you tried, you know, being out of the Senate as an ex-senator, as Akil said, you're still a member of the club. Um, what would you or have you said to them to, you know, what argument w- would you or have you made? Well, I'm not living 1,500 miles away from the Capitol means you're not, you, you may be symbolically part of the club, but you're, you're not having uh, cocktails mm-hmm. with other senators every other night or conversing with them. I am part of a group of former office holders, including members of the Congress, but also appointees uh, that are struggling, have been for two years now, struggling to prevent the destruction of the center, the core of democracy, namely the sanctity of the vote. So I'm involved in that respect, but I'm working with people who are fully in full agreement with my position. I think at the very least, the very least, those who want to keep the filibuster should support a real filibuster that is a a speaking filibuster. I would go farther than that. I think they should go farther than that and and have the, what is called the carve out, which is what's being proposed on voting rights because it is so central to our system that uh, the parliamentarian of the Senate can say, this, this proposed legislation goes to the core of American democracy and therefore the filibuster rule does not apply. Now, how to bring that about internally? I don't know because it's the pro filibuster forces would um, filibuster that discussion. So it's a cat chasing its tail in a way. But um, if protocols and practices are abused at the cost of American democracy, then they have to be abandoned. And I think Akil's argument is far and away the best one that's ever been made. So there's, there, I, I, I know to handshake Senator Manchin, I don't know the lady from Arizona, uh, but if I ever had a chance to talk to them, that's the argument that I would make, certainly would, not that it would make a bit of difference to them. Well, he, he, um, Andy, let me just jump in and, and just elaborate just a bit because among the many things that I admire about Gary Hart, he's actually so modest. Um, so in fact, um, because of what he and I wrote, um, there is um, a clear path forward um, uh, procedurally. And um, so because of what Gary and I wrote on January 2011, January 6, 2011, this, um, we actually did persuade Harry Reid to um, reinterpret the rules. That was in November of 2013. That's the yes. so-called nuclear option. And just on an ordinary day in the Senate, um, November 21st, 2013, I believe it was, 
um, he created a carve-out. Um, and the carve-out was for um, presidential nominees other than to the Supreme Court. Yes. Um, and he says that only requires a simple majority. And but the carve out was voted, um, uh, was adopted by a simple majority. It didn't go through. Didn't require sixty-seven votes or sixty votes. So so the rules were changed in a majoritarian fashion by a simple majority on November twenty-first, twenty thirteen. And frankly, it's in part because the thing that Gary and I wrote persuaded people. Now, was there a, let me just interrupt for our audience. As this carve-out was was adopted, was there an attempt to filibuster it? And if so, how was that defeated? By a certain parliamentary practice, um, appealing to the Constitution itself and the argument that Gary... Because Gary just said, you know, he, he just brought up this notion that, well, how are you going to defeat it? Because you might filibuster it. So here's an example where this actually was done. And so, you know, I, I want to, I just want to point out that it, that it look, you know, you, you have specified a procedure by which right. it can be done. Right. We were able to finesse that. Once we did that, Senate practice was now forever on our side because they had done it once now. Then what happened, but you could say, well, that was Democrats and it was a, a power grab or something. Oh, but then several years later, that was done by Mitch McConnell when Gorsuch was nominated to the Supreme Court, and he did a second carve-out. And that second carve-out now actually took the, the minimal carve-out that we had for presidential nominations and extended to Supreme Court nominations as well as to um, ambassadorial nominations and lower federal court nominations. So, And they did it by simple majority rule, um, the so-called nuclear option. Now, once those things have been established in Senate precedent, and they have, and the Democrats did it in 2013, November 2013, under uh, Majority Leader Reid, and the Republicans did it under Majority Leader McConnell for Gorsuch, it can be done on any day for any other issue. It can be now. Senator Hart was very modest when he said, "Well, maybe we should just have a, at least for now, a narrow carve out just for things that go to the essence of democracy." You know, I agree with him about that. He said, well, we could basically have another carve out but require that it be a speaking filibuster so that you can't forever prevent something from coming to a vote and you have to actually have, give reasons on the floor. Um, so, but, but once we've done carve outs for nominations and we've done that twice, we can do carve outs for anything else by the same procedure that was done on those two days, which to repeat was by simple majority rule. So in a sense, We've already gotten rid of the filibuster in that, and this is what isn't, I think, well understood by everyone. All we need is for a simple majority of the Senate to vote twice for something that in principle, each one of them is willing to vote once for, namely a voting rights bill. All they have to do is by, by 50 votes plus the, the chair, the, uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, um, vote first to, to, for some sort of carve out and second, for the voting rights bill itself. Um, we're already in a world where it's really clear that if Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin um, and every other Democrat were supportive of the thing, we could do it. 
Now, this filling and drawing to an inside straight because there are only 50 Democrats, they're not 54 or 57 or, or um, as, as there have been at, at, at other times and other places, but we're already in a world where it can, and, and then my final answer to if Senator Sinema ever, you know, a staffer called me up and said, well, I'm worried about the rights of the minority and all the rest, I'd say, don't worry so much about that because the Senate's a smaller place than the House. Um, uh, people come on gradually. It has all sorts of institutional traditions. And um, um, even with simple majorities, um, the Senate worked very well as a deliberative body all the way up to the Civil War. It worked very well on most issues most of the time um, and, 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 and until the modern era. It's the modern era that's been dysfunctional. You can create all sorts of traditions of comity and reciprocity and courtesy, the sorts of things that we've already heard Gary Hart mention um, that characterizing the Senate um, for um, much of his his time there, those things can actually just so the the uh, so everyone gets to speak, um, and then everyone gets to vote. The minority gets a chance to make its case heard. I would even say um, offer amendments from the floor and do other things, but then we actually take votes. Everyone speaks, then everyone votes. Um, and in the House, that's a harder thing because there are 435 of them. But in the Senate, actually, um, it's uh, oh, and one final thing: there are, I think more purplish senators proportionally than there are purplish House members because most of the seats in the House are actually strongly um, um, blue or strongly red. Um, so it's a bit of a bimodal distribution where the only people in the middle, you know, kind of the roadkill, something. But in the Senate, there are more states like Colorado, Virginia, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and so on. There's a higher percentage of states that are swingy enough states, North Carolina, perhaps um, Florida is moving away from that, but, but uh, Arizona, um, so that a higher percentage of senators are actually going to be um, people in the middle who are able to join hands with other people in the middle, as Gary Hart did. That's why I mentioned he's a McGovern Democrat who manages to actually impress enough people to get elected in 74 and reelected in, in, in 80 and work with Republican senators so that Barry Goldwater said what he said about Gary Hart. So I think that what we could summarize what Akil has said as saying that this that the filibuster is kaput from a constitutional point of view. In other words, the arguments that we can't get rid of it before constitutional reasons are are you know no longer bought into. Everyone agrees now that majority vote and it's gone. We can do it. The okay. question is whether we want to and whether it would be a good idea. So I want to ask. Um, Gary, about that. Um, and that's because of this piece that Gary and I wrote together in 2011, for, frankly, because before then, some people thought that, but they thought, oh, you can only do it on the first day of a, of a Senate session or something. Right. New and session and we're then. going to we're going to go through that argument uh, in detail when we when Gary's not on. But but right. but for now, um, I'd like to talk to, to you, Gary, about the, you know, the, the point of view of the senators. Um, you know, why they might want to keep the filibuster. Um, so here's, here's kind of a, a long, a long argument that I was trying to think about. So we can, we can grant that the Republicans can eliminate the filibuster themselves should they gain the majority in the Senate. And they might be motivated to do so if they gain the White House and both houses of Congress, because then they could get through their, you know, agenda. Um, 
So the notion that the Democrats shouldn't eliminate the filibuster because it's going to come back to bite us in the butt, it seems hard to justify, right? Because the Republicans have already demonstrated that they will do so when it suits them, as they did um, in expanding it so they could confirm Justice Gorsuch. Um, but if we look at uh, you know another possible benefit, um, do you find that the filibuster has any value in preventing a sort of a wholesale seesawing of American law and policy. So I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, there's been an increased use of executive orders in recent years. And so there was kind of this notion of a swing from Obama to Trump and then back to Biden in terms of whole swaths of American uh, governmental administrative practice and perhaps in the perception of America by our allies. And it feels unhealthy for America to renounce all sorts of international and diplomatic norms under Trump or to renounce TPP, to strip the State Department and so on, and then suddenly restore much of our previous stance under Biden, only to possibly go back to this again in a few years. It makes America difficult to deal with and unpredictable and so forth. So does the filibuster, by analogy, you can't do anything about that, but can it, by analogy, prevent uh, an instability to some degree and if so, might we hesitate to advocate for its elimination just by slowing down the Senate, as it clearly does, perhaps to an extreme? Um, you know, is that a virtue that we might preserve? Um, and if not, is there another protective mechanism beyond just virtuous leadership, which I know you've advocated for? Well, it's, <clears throat> it's a complicated question. I and I'll have to process it for a while because I, I'm having trouble following the logic of keeping the filibuster to preserve continuity across administrations. I don't, I don't follow that logic. I don't think I think it's apples and oranges, frankly. But well, I meant by analogy. In other words, that, that we see instability from administration to administration, and that seems harmful. So if we're going to have instability from, like the Democrats just took over, so we'll have a whole, you know, we, the, a whole, the Democrats have kind of the triple play in having control of both houses of Congress and the White House. So you see wholesale changes. And then if the Republicans came in, which could happen in 2024, right, um, you could yeah. then see, a, a, you know, a dramatic turnaround the other way. So it's a, a very unstable uh, situation regarding you know, the legislative aspects of, of American uh, law and policy. I don't, I don't see with our democracy and the situation it is in and headed toward finding a way to use the filibuster again, to generate continuity. Uh, uh, it's, it's, as, it's an argument I don't understand. And here's so, here, here, I think the answer to your question is no. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and here's why I'm, I'm with Gary. So first of all, um, it, it's like what they say at the Yale Law School. Well, well, that works in practice, but does it work in theory? So yeah. first of all, you know, we 
we didn't have a filibuster, you know, before Abe Lincoln, and, and we didn't have actually much of a, of a, a filibuster across the board really until the 70s, except in voting rights where they where it was actually bad. Um, so it's only been in the recent period that we've had this, and that's actually the dysfunctional period. So that's just the, the empirical point. You know, uh, the conceptual point are, you know, ain't elections a bitch? You know, gee, the people can change their mind from time to time, and they vote for a Democrat, for president, then they vote for a Republican, and then they vote for a Democrat. So so yes, that's the nature of democracies, and there are regimes in the world say, that's why democracies are bad. Oh, for the good old days of, of Queen Elizabeth being in there for 70 years, whatever, that's continuity. It's just not actually our you know, Republican tradition. And in fact, our system has more built-in buffers and safeguards than many democracies around the world, because most of them don't have bicameralism and presentment. You just actually, whoever wins a narrow parliamentary majority in, in England, actually, you, uh, there really isn't a House of Lords. And, and if you control a parliament, you control the, the prime ministership and the cabinet, and, and you can have uh, you know, fluctuations back and forth between um, Tories and, and, and Labour. And 50 states, you see, have bicameralism and, and presentment pretty much and they managed to to do things so so the republic will stand if we actually go back to, to things that were good enough for thomas jefferson and 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 george washington and, and abe lincoln for that matter i just wanted to Let point me, out that it's not my argument that i, 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 I just was a, you know right. <laughs> yes no 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 because you're 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 so scrupulously fair but um uh but that you know and gary's just too nice to just pile on the way i i did but that's fine let me add some to Akil's argument or statement. Um, oddly enough, democracy is not just under threat in the United States. It's under threat throughout the democratic world, the Western world. And that should cause us to ask two questions. One is, is there a fix to preserve democracy in America through changes in the rules or something or there are bigger trends and tides going on that call into question whether democracy works anywhere and uh as i say i one shouldn't draw strength from seeing other countries in trouble <laughs> look at great britain right now don't know it's certainly not a republic but it claims democratic principles it's a mess and a uh, number of other Western European countries are a mess politically. And it's because of the changes going on in the world, in trade, in globalization, in the environment, in uh, just the practical issue of supply lines, which we can't seem to get on top of because it's, too, it's now too complicated because of globalization. So, um, I think we need to think more deeply and beyond just America to look for solutions. We, if we can find solutions for continuation of democracy that apply everywhere, then I think we not only will be better off here in the United States, I, I must say I think in a way, focus on the filibuster is is too narrow. I, I think the challenges to our system now are so great and so big and so, in some ways, unique that um, 
trying to change a very important practice, not a rule, but a practice in the Senate is probably not going to preserve the democracy of America under assault from authoritarianism, which is now the contest. We can talk liberal conservative and how fractured the Democratic Party is between progressives and moderates and how fractured the Republicans are between Trumpism and the old traditions. But um, I think I think there are some earthquakes going on under under our economic system as well as our political systems that are in great danger. And when and when people who don't pay much attention feel uncertain or frightened, they quite often look for authority to take over. And I think that's that's the underlying struggle going on in America right now. It's between however you define Trumpism, which is willing to sacrifice an awful lot of freedoms, and those of us who start with the vote and the majority of the vote to govern ourselves. It's it's so it's um, Tim Snyder at Yale is on this case, and others are as well, and they're frightened. These are serious historians and political scientists who are very, very worried. You know, I, I had the, in preparing for this podcast that I was reading over your book, The Republic uh, of Conscience from 2015, and by the way, I should mention to our audience that uh, Senator Hart is going to have a new book coming out later this year uh, called The the, uh, the American Republic Can Save American Democracy. And that'll be out in the spring. Um, Thank you. Sure, of course. Um, but in this book, um, you, you, te- you uh, if I could summarize it uh, in one sentence, I would say um, the big problems are, uh, and this is in 2015, the big problems are special interests and money in government, um, and the big uh, divide is big government versus small government in America. And that just feels uh, today... Like I wish those were our problems right now, you know yeah. that that I wouldn't, uh, I, would, that I wouldn't write that today. Right, that we've really gone beyond that level, and you know you call for a return to, uh, you know, civic virtue and and the um, the values of the founders, and that message, I think, is uh, is not lost on on or shouldn't be lost on people today because. I think the difference is that we've moved even further away, um, and moved to moved further away from even more basic premises, um, not just a matter of corruption, but just the basic premises of democracy and representative government and the su- and suffrage, you know, and and so forth. Um, so, um, you know, what what do you think? Um, we might do as a nation what you know you you say well procedural fixes such as filibuster you know and and that's that's not going to get us anywhere um it needs to be presumably more fundamental um you know how you know what what needs to be done and how if i could just jump in just one thing that really is fundamental um that uh, two things that we've already heard about it are votes 
uh, voting, which is why voting, protecting voting rights are so important. And you heard him say that, and that's connected to filibuster reform because the filibuster reform helps you get the voting rights, um, the new Voting Rights Act. But the second thing that he also said is, um, actually, the filibuster is perverse now because people aren't talking. So he wants to actually uh, promote, at least on the Senate, actual speeches and discourse and, and, and argumentation, um, so speech and votes. And those are, the filibuster is a, is, is a technical thing, but underlying it are big issues about um, the, the, really the twin pillars of democracy, um, voting rights and, 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 and political discourse, uh, um, uh, typically. Um, but, but he mentioned a third thing, because it's not just about the Senate. If you're talking about Trump and Trumpism and authoritarianism, you need to bring in the executive branch. Andy, you talked about executive orders and trying to govern by you know, executive orders. And one of the reasons we wanted Gary Hart to be on is he, it's not just that he's you know, a very distinguished um, former senator, um, but he ran for the presidency. Um, and he's obviously got a lot of thoughts about presidential power um, and uh, its um, proper uses and abuses. So actually, it's part of the pivot that you're encouraging us to make sort of away from the filibuster narrowly understood and the, um, to, to um, these broader issues. Um, uh, president, uh, presidential power, presidential selection process, um, and, and the American electorate more generally, your thoughts. So all we were asking you is how to fix the world and how to, and how, how to pick presidents. In, in <laughs> five minutes or less. You know, I'm tempted, Professor, to contradict myself by saying the president doesn't have enough power, but he has too much power. And the struggle going on now, as I said before, isn't between the right and the left. It is over power, and filibuster is part of that, but gerrymandering districts, which has been going on a long time, appointment of election officials at the local level, and uh, takeover of the elections process in America. This is all a form of authoritarianism, and that is about holding power, getting and holding power. So, <laughs> you know, we all, we partisans, when we have our president in office, want him or her, him, to um, do a lot of things. When the other party has their president in power, we want to handcuff that person. And it, you really can't have it both ways. So we better find a kind of, <laughs> I almost invoked Eisenhower, I don't know why, but there is a center in America and it's not conflict avoidance. It is weighing interests against each other and if those interests are legitimate and not, and not selfish, trying to bring people together. And that's been, you know, I know Joe Biden, I served with him for 12 years. Uh, when he says, I want to bring people together, he, he really genuinely means that. But I don't think, even in spite of his three plus years in Washington, 
he may not appreciate how broken the partisan system is. Look, uh, the people who criticize him, him for not meeting his promises never acknowledge the filibuster and the lockstep of the Republicans in Congress. Lockstep. And look at Liz Cheney to make the point. There is an authoritarian system working in the Republican Party right now, wholesale. And I'm not sure even Donald Trump controls it. A lot of his wealthy contributors are part of it. There's something called the Council on National Policy, which coordinates all of this. Uh, we're now getting, we're now dabbling in local public education. My son told me today that there is a law being proposed in Texas that would empower local school districts or the state to mic up teachers in public schools and to broadcast what they're saying in their classrooms so that parents can listen. And the, uh, I don't know how to describe that. It's fascist. Uh, it's that there is a, a set of authorities that you are permitted to follow, but anything that deviates, uh, you're going to be punished, may lose your job. I mean, this is, this is unheard of in American history, I think. So um, I'm rambling a bit, but it, it does get down to the way a president is criticized, and including increasingly now by his own party, for not doing things that he himself alone cannot do. And that's civic education, which I got in a small town in Kansas in the eighth grade. Presidents, when I was a candidate for national office, I rarely ever said, if I'm elected, I'm going to do X. Because it, <laughs> you, you only have to read the Constitution once to understand balance of power, checks and balances, and all of that. He cannot do, he, he can issue executive orders, and Trump and others before him have done a lot of that, but he can't pass laws by himself. It's that simple. So you've mentioned a couple of things there. One is you're saying there's lockstep, and you're implicitly saying and, and I, uh, that, that that wasn't true when you were in the Senate, that you, you know, sometimes worked with leading Republicans. I quoted Barry Goldwater earlier. I know that you, for example, um, have a high regard for Jack Danforth, who um, is another Yale Law School graduate, a kind of moderate Republican. You invoked Eisenhower. Um, our audience associates you with Colorado, but of course, um, um, you were born in Kansas, um, uh, and um, and and that's where Eisenhower grew up, is in Abilene, uh, uh, Kansas. So you, you got a Midwestern education before you you came out to the coasts. Um, you know, as did Jack Danforth. You know, before you know he came out to Yale Law School. Um, so one thing that you've talked about is um, lockstep, and we have a certain hyperpartisanship now. 
um, which interacts with the filibuster and other things. And another thing you talked about, though, is um, uh, presidential power. Andy also invited you, though, to talk about the presidential election system. Do you think that's broken? You talked a little bit about um, um, things that are happening at the, at the local level. How would you think about primaries, caucuses, superdelegates? Should primaries be open or closed? Are, are there things there that could make our system better rather than, than worse? Um, you mentioned also sort of civic education, all the rest. Um, so how, how could that be you know, f improved in any way to feed into our uh, national conversation? Because at its best, presidential elections are part of actually um, a civic education of, of every American. When, at their best, like Lincoln-Douglas debates and things like I know that was for the Senate. Do you have thoughts about the presidential process um, as well as uh, thoughts about, the president, about presidential power? and about the, the party system um, above and beyond the filibuster? That's a huge question. If I could just narrow it down a little bit for, for Gary, maybe if we could you know, talk about those things in relation to hyper-partisanship. In other words, that you talked, to, you know, you mentioned the lockstep and so forth, you know, that is the process, does it favor cohesion, American unity and cohesion? Um, or does it disfavor it, and how might how might that be, you know, effect uh, improved? Well, the nomination process, as it currently operates, particularly on the Republican side, operates strongly against by any any bipartisanship. Republicans are penalized if they cooperate with one Democrat. In, a, in their state, and often they get they they draw a primary or a host of primaries. I think backing up a bit, the I am strongly in favor of reforms of the electoral process as being proposed now by a bipartisan group uh, of taking away the possibility of state legislatures overruling the majority of voters in their states and sending a group of electors who may disagree completely with the outcome of the popular vote. That really has to change. And um, as to the nomination process, I mean, you, you well know and your listeners know, it's, it's a big two-step process, nomination and general election, they're to totally different races. I'll reflect momentarily on my experience in 84, now a lifetime ago. My principal opponent, or I was his principal opponent, was the late Walter Mondale, former vice president. And none of the press, to my knowledge, uh, commented on the fact that he and I each won 25 states. The difference was, as I think your question mentioned, the automatic delegates to the convention. And uh, the difference in the nomination vote at the convention in San Francisco in 84 was, were the automatic delegates, largely elected officials, party officials. And I think to a person, every one of them, 700 and something, voted for Vice President Mondale. That was the difference. 
we went to the convention in terms of delegates that we had earned, uh, almost tied, almost tied. And I, I, I think the fact that Tritz won handily uh, was the headline of the day. Very little of going back and looking at the analysis of how we split those states and was there any one or more factors that made the difference, and there was. It was a story that was never written. The states that I won were benefiting from globalization and trade. The states that Fritz won were being hurt by trade and globalization. It was that simple. That was the headline of the division in the Democratic Party in 84. And I don't think anybody ever wrote it. Wow. That's a very interesting insight. So, so the coasts are, were the places that were doing better um, under trade and globalization in general? You know, I think I have to check this because it's time has passed. I think I won primaries and caucuses in every state west of the Mississippi, I believe. I may be off by one or two. I swept California, mm -hmm. the last of the big primaries, and uh, and the whole West Coast, and I think even the Rocky Mountain West, because I was from that area. But um, even they were doing well, shipping timber and other and cattle uh, around the world, so they were benefiting from globalization. But anyway, um, it's kind of a toss-up with me between primaries and, and caucuses. Primaries cost a lot of money, and um, caucuses are trying to convince day-to-day -day Democrats to go to their neighborhood meeting and vote for a candidate, and then it costs much less. So there, there are benefits both ways. Well, since you're talking about raising money, you know, for um, uh, running for office, and of course, it's so much more expensive at the presidential level than in any um, given state. Maybe you know, just because we've got you here, and you know, how many people have ever run for president? You know, I mean, it's it's and come this close to actually getting major party nomination. It's it's uh, extraordinary that that we've got you here. And so, I want to just ask you a little bit about that. So, so um, the, the, the stereotype is uh, the Republicans are getting their money from um, Wall Street, the major donors, and the Democrats are supported by Hollywood, which has a different kind of dynamic of, of celebrity. Um, I may be misremembering, but I have this foggy uh, impression that the Eagles, for example, one of my favorite uh, um, uh, bands of all time, uh, were, were uh, or at least some members of the Eagles were, were supportive of you. They, they, they had maybe had Colorado connections or, or, or something, but, but can you talk a little bit about actually when you're running for president, you know, how much money, you, how much time are you spending dialing for dollars? How much time are you trying to get celebrity endorsements versus pressing the flesh, um, at, you know, in, in small town ways versus getting on television, getting endorsements? I, I still have, of course, this very vivid memory of you, Abe Lincoln-like, you know, with that axe in, in New Hampshire um, when you threw it over your head and, and it stuck in. In, in the target, we'll put that on the the, the, the website because um, uh, that was that was an amazing moment. But but a little bit about sort of you know 
how you put it all together and how much time you're spending on all of these things, apart from boning up on the issues and trying to think about the world. Are you saying that he well, swept was- California because of Hotel California? From the Eagles. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt. You know, as a Californian, you know, to have the Eagles on your side, it seems to me. But. Or at least one or two of them. Um, let me give you a, a statistic that will stun you. And it's not presidential. It's in my first Senate race in, eight, in 74. I had, uh, there were six Democrats campaigning for the nomination in a state of 5 million people. And uh, I won the, the primary, got the nomination, and then ran against a two-term wealthy Republican incumbent. The entire race, start to finish, cost $375,000. I am told now that a Senate race in Colorado, even if you have the nomination, can cost 50 to $60 million or even more. So talking to me about campaigning is like resurrecting a dinosaur. It was a totally different time. The one good thing that has happened was Barack Obama's discovery of the internet to raise money. That's clean good small dollars. Now, I think others are doing the same thing. It's harder to do at the state level, obviously. But for national politics, if you can, can if you can finance a national presidential campaign, largely with what I would say small dollars, anything under $100, that's, that, that's good for democracy. You know, I took a look last night in preparation for this discussion about uh, at a website that keeps track of uh, donations from small donors as opposed to large donors. Um, And overall, now this wasn't presidential, but for Senate and House uh, campaigns in 2020, about 80% of the money was raised by large donors. And there's a tremendous variation in who had a large percentage of small donors. So the the candidate that had the largest percentage from small donors was uh, was AOC. And she had about hmm. 71% of her donations from small donors. The, the major candidate that had the largest donation from large donors was Chuck Schumer. 98% of his donations came from large donors. But anyway, just just a couple of tidbits. But that's not presidential. But I think that that this this question about small donors versus large donors um, is a is a very interesting one. And so I thought I'd you know shed those numbers on there. My era, if I could summarize the situation, I am from a different era. Uh, I there was a period of time. I think it was probably the early '80s when I felt that I understood American politics as well as, if not better than, anyone else. Today, I don't understand any of it, none of it. The money, the media, uh, the parties, it's a different world. I feel like Rip Van Winkle, that uh, I'm living in an era I don't understand at all. None of the old rules apply, and those few that might uh, are rapidly disappearing. So just keep that in mind. As I mentioned earlier, Senator Hart is 
generously agreed to return to continue this conversation. And there are many topics we are looking forward to covering, but just as an example, I hope to ask you about the experience of running for president because so few people have done it. It is the human experience. It's the hardest thing you can ever imagine. Before you go, again, just since I have a chance to look you right in the eye, face to face, friend to friend, I just want to offer you my my sincere condolences on on, on you. passing. You you are in my thoughts and prayers, and I want you to know that. Well, that's very kind of you. You did have the opportunity to meet her, and I can't begin to tell you of the condolences that we've received over the past six or eight months, um, how many people around the country that she met talked about her kindness, her interest in them, her uh, humor, uh, her beauty. Uh, she really made an impact on an awful lot of people. And I and it took me a while to try to figure that out. And it was because she wasn't like any other spouse's wife. And I won't name any names, but the type that sits on the edge of the stage and smiles and nods as their devoted husband gives his speech. Uh, she went out on her own. She was a, a English speech and drama major, and she could talk without notes. And she could talk for half an hour and then answer half an hour of questions without any notes. And she just blew people away. So thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay. Thank you. So, so great to meet you. My Look friend. forward to our next conversation. Okay.